Hey everybody, Magnus here. I, I just got back from running some errands and... Seriously, what the fuck happened to this world? You know? What I did was I went out to, like I say, just run a couple of errands and pick up a few things, right? It's my day off. Why not do it? So headed over to 8th Dimension Comics when I wanted to pick up some presents for Stacy, right? This is probably the one thing I did today that really turned out more or less the way I intended it to, right? Picked up a couple of shirts for her. Haven't given them to her yet, but uh, I will, and hopefully she likes them. Now, it's not the observance of any type of anniversary or really anything like that. It's Partly it's just that I love her and I want her to have stuff. Partly it's just insurance. You know, you never know what might happen in the future, right? Anyway, so got her some, shir uh, some shirts, and then I headed on my way. Went over to Best Buy, and that's where pretty much the wheels came off the wagon, right? Went up there, really, I wanted to buy two things. First, a lot of my stuff is in storage, and very frankly, I just don't really have the time or the willingness to go looking for it. So, I already own the movie Tremors on DVD, but like I say, I don't want to have to spend the time searching around uh, through it, or for it, through my... Uh, my little storage place, right? So I was just going to go fucking buy another one. Well, guess what? Wasn't in stock. This was a fucking mass-produced DVD, and I think there was even like a special edition that came out really not that long ago. But fucking it's nowhere to be found. So I thought, okay, well, I guess I can't get that, so I'll just... Uh, I wanted to look around and just see if I could find this uh, live REM CD that I've been looking for for a while. And fucking it wasn't there either. Oh, they got tons of Beatles and Pink Floyd and bullshit like that. Because, hey, that stuff is always a consistent and reliable seller. But stuff like R.E.M., well, I'm sorry, that was a couple of years ago. Fucking they don't have that anymore. Now, look, here's the thing. I found both of those things online. All right? It's not like it's that hard to find. But I don't want to have to fucking wait for this stuff. All right? Or if I do, I don't want to pay full price for it. I want to get some kind of a discount and wait a while to get it. Or I want to get it right fucking now and pay full price. I can do one of those or the other. What I'm not prepared to do is both of those. And if I order the shit online, that's what I'm going to have to do. I'm going to have to wait fucking three years to get it. And I'm going to have to pull down my britches and get butt fucked over the price, too. No thanks. Okay? So, as I say, I can wait a while for it and get a little bit of a discount. Or I can get it right now at full price. But what I'm not going to do is wait a while and then pay full fucking retail price, okay? Not happening. And it just makes me think, you know, there was a time, it feels like it wasn't really even all that long ago, but there was a time when Best Buy fucking sold things. But it doesn't seem like they do anymore. If, if, you, if what you want to do is go up there and buy a movie or buy a CD or something like that, you're out of fucking luck, dude. Sorry. All right now, if you want to buy stuff for your iPhone or your or whatever fucking tablet it is that you use, or you want to buy a new laptop. Oh, you can find tons of shit for that. Plenty of that to choose from. But if you want to buy something that is basically more like consumable media, well, unless it's brand fucking new and it came out two weeks ago, you're not likely to find it. Right? They don't stock that shit anymore. Apparently, they just send the shit back after six months. I'm fucking sick of it. You know, I don't know what the fuck happened to this country, but it feels like you know there was a time when you could go out and you could buy this stuff, right? Like maybe you could go to Warehouse Music or Blockbuster Music or something like that. And yeah, their prices could be a little bit shitty at times, but you know what? They fucking had what you were looking for. 
that counts for a lot. These days, I, I, like, I don't know if it's just the fact that so much of this stuff is now consumed through iTunes, and that's really the main distribution network for a lot of this stuff now, or really what the fucking deal is. But it just seems like in the past couple of years, this stuff, like just the entire nature of retail sales in America has just completely fucking died, and I don't understand it. All right? I don't like it. I, I want to be able to go out, buy the shit, take it home, watch it, listen to it, wipe my ass with it, just whatever it is that I'm going to do, and, and not have to think about it again, not have to, uh, you know, budget this shit out and uh, figure out, you know, well, when am I going to be able to be home to actually accept delivery for this bullshit? I don't want to fucking do that. Anyway, so that's pretty much what I got. Enjoy the rest of the episode. Hey, your attention, please. This is a piece of art. His Kryptonian biological makeup is enhanced by Earth's yellow sun. Dr. Doom wears body to conceal his own mangled form. Worst episode ever. Why? Who shot first? Who gives a shit? It's what's called super nerd nitpicking over something that's not really that important. Welcome back to Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and I promise, Smallville is not the only thing I ever talk about. But you'd think it was if all you ever listened to was every eighth episode of my show. But it's not true. Nope. Usually, I talk about comics, movies, and TV shows, but... All that shit gets put on the back burner every 8th episode so as I can gap about Smallville. Smallville's my favorite TV show, you see. And not only that, it's also my favorite incarnation of Superman. Smallville's top dog in my book. Number one, with a bullet. But one thing I've noticed is that saying so is a pretty good way to piss some people off. Some folks seem to think that Christopher Reeve deserves the top spot on everybody's list by default. Well, I don't believe that. I mean, look, don't get me wrong, I dig Christopher Reeve as Superman as much as the next guy, but he's not at the top of my list. Nope. That's a toss-up between Tom Welling and Henry Cavill. That's all bullshit anyway, though. Completely not my point. What I'm trying to say here is, when I first started Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, I talked uh, Star Wars every eighth episode, but that got kind of stale after a while. When all's said and done, it seems I didn't have as much to say about Star Wars as I first thought. Shit happens, I guess. There is another problem, though. I came to realize that Setting aside a designated Star Wars episode as part of my format came off maybe a little too similar to Star Wars Monthly Monday from Two True Freaks. At least for me. 
and I am Magnus. What I think, say, and believe is the definition of what is. But when I established the format of Trennis Magnus Punches Reality way back in the beginning, I, I gotta say, I didn't think a whole lot about that stuff. I just did it that way because it seemed right. I, I can honestly say I had no conscious thought of the similarity to what the two true freaks do. All I wanted to do was just develop a format that seemed cool to me. Didn't really consider too much of anything beyond that point. But it started to become a consideration once I'd gotten my feet wet as a podcaster. I have to say, though, it became full-blown fucking panic when I joined the Two True Freaks podcast network back in November of 2013. <laughs> eh. You know, it, it seems so long ago now. Anyway, in fact, I'd venture that joining the Two True Freaks network was the real death knell for my occasional Star Wars shows. If I had to stick a thumbtack in the map and say, here's where it all started, that'd be just about where I'd put it. I mean, you know how it goes. In a perfect world, you'd kind of like to avoid offending your hosts. In my case especially, they're the ones doing me the favor by giving me server space and access to their network. All that shit aside, though, Honestly, nobody wants to feel or look like they're copying somebody else's ideas because they can't come up with their own. So, to make a short story long, I abolished my Star Wars weekend episodes. Now, I'm not saying that I won't talk about Star Wars again at some point in the future. It's probably inevitable. It just isn't going to be done as part of my regular format like it used to be, that's all. It's not going to be a fixture of this show. Anyway, so yeah, something had to take uh, the place of Star Wars, though, and truth is, I got a fair amount of attention for Trennis Magnus Punch's reality, starting from my very first episode, because, as I said, I spent most of that episode defending Smallville from what I still think are a lot of unjustified attacks. So, my thinking was that Maybe I could half-ass revisit that idea by doing shows where I analyze Smallville. Not just defend Smallville, by which I mean take an active hand in bringing up all of Smallville's virtues and strong points. All the shit that I love about the show, basically. Not only that, but analyze the son of a bitch. Smallville purports to tell the story about how Clark Kent, the farm boy, becomes Superman, the definitive superhero. So, I guess the most obvious question to ask is, how well does it do that? Shit like that. Anyway, the thing to remember, though, is that nobody ever said Smallville's perfect. Or, I guess they could, but they'd be kind of full of shit because it's just not true. Smallville has its fair share of problems and bad decisions. Anybody who says otherwise doesn't know what the hell he's talking about. Still, it bugs the fuck out of me that I'm one of the few who seems to see the genius of the show. It just doesn't deserve the bad shit that's been said about it over the years, particularly by people who, in my opinion, really ought to know better. And let me add here that it's one thing to decide that Smallville just isn't your thing. 
but there's some portion of the fan base who always argues that Smallville somehow dishonors what Superman's all about. Now, I freely admit that Smallville makes absolutely no effort to fit in with the tone or the continuity of the Reeve movies. That's definitely true. So if your love of Superman begins and ends with those films and you just can't accept anything else, well, of course Smallville's not going to be your cup of tea. That makes sense. But if you just never saw what was so good about Smallville or maybe you just dismissed it too quickly, these eighth episode retrospectives may change your mind. That's a theory, at least. Now... The original concept I had was doing a commentary track for each episode of Smallville. But eventually I realized that that worked out to in excess of 200-something commentaries. Even I couldn't pull that off. Besides, I, I just suspect I'd go batshit fucking nuts if I had to record a commentary for all of the dreaded season four. Because... Ugh. The dreaded season four can fuck off as far as I'm concerned. And shit, the day's coming when I'll have to talk about the dreaded season four. This could get messy. Think I'll need alcohol. A lot of alcohol. But anyway, <clears throat> rather than individual commentaries, these little eighth episode retrospectives are a pretty good way to talk about a few Smallville episodes at a time and work my way through the entire series. There's enough shit here to last for ages of eighth-episode shows. So, all in all, this seemed like a pretty good compromise. Another thing in all this is to be kind of holistic in my analysis. The intention, and I, I've largely stuck to this, but the intention is to tie ongoing subplots and other continuity uh, administrivia, I guess, in subsequent seasons back to what's come before as I go along, because Smallville's continuity is another point of contention for some people. But I've always thought that this show's continuity was incredibly fucking underrated. I don't think Smallville ever got enough credit for having good continuity. So maybe I can set the record straight there. <sighs> so there you go. Now, Last time, I finished my remarks by talking about Smallville, Season 2, Episode 23, Exodus. That can mean only one thing. It's time for a break. So, I'll be right back to resume the discussion about Smallville, Season 3, with Episode number 1, Exile, after these messages. events of history. Come with me and observe the birth and growth of a legend. From the pages of a ten-cent pulp comic book to the newspapers, radio program adventures, 
theatrical films, and more. Witness the dawn of the superhero. Superman. Available on iTunes and at goldenagesuperman.libson.com. Every legend has a beginning. Hey, Jeff. Hey, Mike. Man, it sure is great to be back to From Crisis to Crisis after all this time. It's been a busy year for both of us. For very different reasons. But now we're ready to cover the post-death and return Superman stories. Yeah, and we're about to start the books that came out in 1994, which means that we have so much to look forward to, like Bizarro's World. The Battle for and Fall of Metropolis. Superman Doomsday, Hunter, Prey. Worlds Collide. Well, you're looking forward to that one. Oh, bite me. Zero hour. Zero month. And right there at the end, we have Dead Again. And don't forget, the Elseworlds annuals as well. Well, most of them, anyway. Yeah, yeah, some of those really did suck, don't they? But From Crisis to Crisis is back. New episodes will drop on Thursday, just like before. You can find the show at the Superman homepage, www.supermanhomepage.com, as well as at the Superman Podcast Network, which is at www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com. And we also have a Facebook page that you can like by going to www.facebook.com slash From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast. Dot com. Is it dot com on there? No. No, no, it's not. No, no dot com. Forget that. <laughs> so from crisis to crisis is back, folks, and better than ever. Well, I'm better than ever. You need some work. No, shut up. No, you 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 shut up. From crisis to crisis, a Superman podcast covering the post-crisis adventures of Superman one half month at a time. Every Thursday at www.supermanhomepage.com and www.fortressofbailitude.com. Hi, this is Erica Durantz. You're listening to Magnus talk about Smallville. Okay, I'm back now and beginning my coverage of Smallville Season 3. Now, there weren't any huge changes made to the cast this season. In fact, there wasn't really anything major going on behind the scenes either. This is the first Smallville season that had started up without the drama of taking a TV pilot to series like there was with the first season or in building up a brand new writing staff like there was with the second season. One fairly important thing, though, is that visually, Smallville hit the ground running in the third season. The first season was primarily devoted to setting up the characters and the Smallville version of the Superman mythos. The second season placed a slightly heavier emphasis on visuals, cinematography, color design, production design, visual effects, and other 
tricks of the trade. But the third season is where all that stuff was officially set in stone. Each character had a definitive look and color scheme. Clark was primarily outfitted in primary colors. A good bit of his wardrobe depended upon Superman's trademark red and blue. Lex's colors were mostly black, green, purple, and variations. Trademark supervillain colors, in other words. Even the lighting in a good number of Lex's scenes, it was just, it was suggestive and ominous about his future villainy. Lana's wardrobe was mostly short-sleeved shirts and tight jeans. Her colors were shades of pink and just different uh, soft pastels. Lionel was typically outfitted in icy blues, whites, and blacks. Moreover, there was a new sort of guiding philosophy for the different uh, settings of the show. The Kent Farm, for example, is Clark's refuge. Colors tend to be bright and vibrant with minimal camera movements when the action's located, <clears throat> located on the Kent Farm. Smallville High School depends upon a lot of the same aesthetics, but the camera movements come a little more frequently and are usually slightly more drastic. They're still gentle, you understand, just more noticeable. Metropolis has a cool blue tone, and the cuts tend to cut, come a little more quickly and abruptly. Clark's battles with various supervillains also tend to use rapid movements with a handheld camera. All that shit and more was nailed down beginning with season three. It all added up to giving Smallville a unique and different look from most of what else was on TV at the time. But, for as good as it is in the third season, the visuals of Smallville would be tweaked slightly in subsequent seasons. But this is the first time the show really felt like it felt like watching a live-action comic book. There are some things that defy rational analysis, and <clears throat> honestly, my love for Smallville's visual style beginning in the third season is kind of one of them. I can't, really <clears throat> I can't really intellectually quantify how amazing Smallville's aesthetics are starting with the third season. It's eye candy, and I just love it. It'd get even better in later seasons, like I said, but man, oh man, there's a lot to love here. So, anyway, that's just the background stuff. First up, we've got episode number one, Exile. The Kents are losing the farm. Lex is lost on a desert island. Lana's desperately searching for Clark. Chloe knows damn good and well where Clark is, but's kept it to herself. And Clark's ensconced in Metropolis, living the high life. Now... Prior to the season three, basically between season two and season three, Chloe found Clark by sheer accident. It's a million to one shot. And I'm going to be honest with you, that bugged me when I first saw this show, and it bugs me now. Chloe's good at her job. She finds information. She seeks after the truth, and she always gets her man. So I would have preferred it if she'd found Clark, because that's how good she is. But that's not exactly how things went down in this episode. And you know what? Water under the bridge. But I can't just let it go without comment. 
So, most of this episode, Exile, fits into deeper themes and implications. Lex's enemy on the island is a figment of his own imagination. You could reasonably view Lewis as some kind of expression of Lex's dark side. Lewis says that his father was a big man in the corporate world. But all he ever did was make life hell for Lewis. So, Lewis had to kill him. To comment on that any further is going into spoiler territory. Just remember this moment. That's all I ask. Other stuff. It's a true mark of Jonathan's desperation that he turned to Jarrell for assistance. Jonathan wants to bring Clark home. That's it. In the end, he and Jarrell reach an agreement, and this informs the last several episodes of the third season. So, we'll get to him when we get to him. But in exile, though, what you need to understand is that Jarrell temporarily gives Jonathan superpowers so that he can bring Clark home by force. And I'm going to have a lot more to say about this when we get to the end of the season. Talking about it now, like the Lionel uh, thing, that would just be... That, that's just too spoilery. Even so, remember I said this. This is coming back. Anyway, episode two, Phoenix. Phoenix picks up directly where Exile left off with Jonathan and Clark beating the piss out of each other. While he has superpowers, Jonathan's easily the most powerful and dangerous opponent Clark's ever fought. It's important to understand, though, that Clark gets the upper hand mostly because Jonathan is Clark's father and he doesn't want to take the chance of hurting him. Clark doesn't have that kind of baggage working against him. Still, it's interesting to note Less how Red Kryptonite affects Clark, and more how Clark lets Red Kryptonite affect him. Remember back to the second season where, when Clark unwittingly exposes himself to Red Kryptonite. The stakes couldn't have been higher. Clark planned to expose his secret to the world and make millions in the process. That's not what he was up to in exile, though. He robbed ATMs and stuff, but he otherwise kept a fairly low profile. In Phoenix, he makes the decision of his own free will, in spite of the fact that he's on Red Kryptonite, to not kill Jonathan. Red Kryptonite Clark made that choice. Not only that, he also cho uh, chose to destroy the Red Kryptonite ring. This suggests that there are circumstances where Clark can overcome the effects of Red Kryptonite in a truly life-or-death situation. It's not easy for him to do, he needs the biggest and most important motivations to do it, but it's theoretically possible if you take Phoenix at face value. Now, apart from that, <laughs> I gotta tell you, you know, there's really no rational analysis for this. It was just a good fucking fight between Clark and Jonathan. Jonathan grew up in the country. Obviously, he knows a little something-something about kicking somebody's ass when he needs to. Load Jonathan up with superpowers, and I truly believe he'd beat the fuck out of Clark if he really, really set his mind to do it. Other stuff. Remember way back in Season 2, Episode number 16, Fever, that I mentioned that Dr. Helen Bryce drew blood from Clark and it became a bit of a football? And that I said, oh yeah, something else. Something else is the vial of Clark's blood that Helen takes in this episode. It becomes quite the football. Keep your eye on this. Just when you think you'll never hear about this plot point again, 
you hear about this plot point again. It's fucked up, I swear. Well, here you go. Morgan Edge attempts to turn Clark over to Lionel. Lionel had the vial of Clark's blood in his vault, and Edge, not knowing that the blood sample actually belonged to Clark, hired Clark to steal it. Jonathan interrupts the robbery, but Clark did steal the vial of blood. When Edge realizes the blood uh, came from Clark, he tries to give Clark to Lionel, but shit goes down, and Edge takes a lot of bullets during a shootout with Lionel's security thugs. Still, none of this happens before Lionel delicately suggests that he has proof that Morgan Edge is guilty of murder. This isn't throwaway dialogue. This is the opening salvo of a major plot this season. Speaking of which, before the firefight starts, Lionel passes the vial of blood to a woman who runs uh, tests on it in his limo, the Luther Corp limo. It seems like a throwaway moment, but I promise, we have not seen the last of her. She's going to come back. In fact, now's about as good a time as any to point out that Season 3 really is for Lionel what The Empire Strikes Back is for Darth Vader. Lionel, he's never been more evil, murderous, cold, sadistic, or ruthless before, and never would be again. That's really not much of a spoiler to say, so I don't mind saying it here. In the first season, Lionel was a morally flexible absentee father. In the second season, Lionel's a completely amoral, white-collar criminal and possible murderer. But in the third season, he's a good candidate for the Antichrist because literally nothing is beyond him. If you love Lionel as the magnificent bastard, this is your season. In fact, Lionel during Season 3 could fairly be described as Smallville's first real big bad. Other stuff. Lex didn't die, but he sure bought the farm. (laughs) The Kent farm, that is. Look, this may be more of a quibble than anything, but I kind of wish Lex hadn't bailed the Kents out. I mean... It wasn't a bad time for them to move, all things considered. For one thing, moving to a house within Smallville city limits would put Clark a little bit more into the action, which isn't a bad thing. Something else, though, Clark's at a point in his maturity where he doesn't necessarily need to be isolated on a farm anymore. He's got a good handle on his powers, and he's proven that when new ones come along, he has the discipline to learn how to control those, too. And then there's the obvious parallel with the comics of the Kent selling the farm and then moving into uh, town, moving into Smallville proper. That's really not a small consideration either. But the other thing is that selling the farm, honestly, that would have attached real consequences to Clark's actions. Yeah, he has to smooth things over with Lana and Chloe in these episodes, and I don't want to minimize that. But... Mostly, his immediate nuclear family came through this whole mess pretty much unscathed. Yeah, there was a point where they were afraid that they'd have to sell the farm. And, you know, that speaks a lot to how much Clark is able to do in terms of chores and stuff on the farm. But had they lost the farm, it would have been Clark's fault. No excuses. His actions would have had a real impact on his family. But as it is, everything can kind of get swept under the rug now. 
right back to normal. <sighs> I mean, look, it's not worth having a hissy fit over, all right? I'm just saying that losing the farm would have been, it, 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 it would have been a kind of neat thing for the story under these circumstances. It's water under the bridge, nothing we can do to change it, but nevertheless, I just wanted to point all this out. Episode 3, Extinction. The main issue in this episode is Van McNulty, a student at Smallville High, goes on the warpath, murdering meteor freaks everywhere that he can find them. Van didn't just come out of nowhere, either. Back in the third part of my Season 2 retrospective, I said during the segment relating to Visage, Also, Tina kills somebody in this episode. She beats him to death with a baseball bat. Her victim isn't cannon fodder, and this murder doesn't get just swept under the rug. It comes back in a big bad way later on. Tina's victim in Visage was Van's father, an officer in the United States Marine Corps. Van has a mat on for all meteor freaks because of what Tina did to his dad. It's pretty un... And, you know, I gotta tell you, as far as, as, far as motives go... Yeah, that's logical. That's pretty believable. And Van isn't an incidental character either. We'll be seeing him again. Other stuff. Chloe invites Clark to come back to the torch. She specifically says that it's not that she needs the help or really any other excuse. She just misses her friend. Think about that for a minute. Clark lied to her for the latter part of season two and then he verbally abused her in exile. And people, let's face it, Clark's record with Chloe wasn't very clean to begin with. But one of Chloe's defining virtues is a forgiving attitude for other people's foibles. Maybe it'll take time, but Chloe always reaches a point where she forgives the people that she really cares about. In fact, she even goes so far as to try to terminate her partnership with Lionel Luther. Now, true, he doesn't accept her resignation, but that doesn't change the fact that she tried to back out of it. And she did that out of loyalty to Clark. It was an expression of her choosing to forgive him. And you know what, just for fun and games, compare this to Lana, who hasn't always been so quick to forgive Clark. She's held grudges against him over less important shit than what Clark did to Chloe. Speaking of Lana, she and Clark are at odds about Van, and it's a believable disagreement. Lana was attacked by a meteor freak, and Van, intentionally or not, saved her life. In Lana's opinion, Van just so happens to be doing the Lord's work by protecting Smallville from meteor freaks. And shit, Clark would probably agree if Van wasn't killing these people. In fact, deeper themes and implications... This episode raises a lot of morality questions about the meteor infected in Smallville. Now, it's true. A goodly number of them have gone off the deep end and become murderous psychopaths. But not necessarily all of them. Jonathan even goes so far as to say Clark might not be Smallville's only protector. Maybe he is. But for all anybody knows, maybe Clark isn't. Maybe there's some meteor freak out there doing his or her part to keep Smallville safe, too. In a certain sense, you could call this policing one's own, but either way, they could be out there. 
the kryptonite infected will figure heavily into the subsequent seasons, but this is a shot across the bow that maybe not all of them are psychopathic murderers. And this isn't a completely new concept either. Cassandra Carver from Hourglass back in Season 1, Ryan from Seasons 1 and 2, Kyle Tippett from Hug, also in Season 1, and others have had powers and didn't exactly go on murderous killing sprees. Ultimately, morality is determined by actions, not by biology, not by mutation. Another thing is that meteor freaks are becoming less and less of a secret all the time. In the first season, Clark was generally on his own when it came to dealing with meteor-infected supervillains. Especially at first, most people wouldn't have even believed that they exist. But that began changing somewhat in the first season and went into fucking overdrive in the second season. <clears throat> By the third season, meteor freaks aren't yet front-page news for the Daily Planet, but they're well enough known among some of Smallville's, shall we say, more open-minded citizens. Other people seem to be ignorant, though. Lex definitely seems a little skeptical at first that there could be people out there with superpowers coming about as a result of exposure to meteor rocks. Not a doubting Thomas so much. In fact, you can see the moment where the penny drops for Lex when he starts thinking about all of his own miraculous survivals and recoveries, not all of which can be attributed to Clark. Still, most of them can be attributed to Clark, while the rest are, I think, just kind of dumb luck. Lex wrongly assumes he has superior genes or some such after being exposed to so much kryptonite. That's good news in that it discourages his interest in Clark and his mysteries and secrets and all that shit. Another angle here is that it plays into the narcissism and megalomania that people tend to associate with Lex. But this is a double-edged sword for Clark. If Clark convinces Lex that he doesn't have some kind of miraculous ability to survive a lot of crazy shit, Lex may resume investigating the Kent family. On the other hand, if Clark convinces Lex that he does have some kind of miraculous ability to survive a lot of crazy shit, Lex may take a lot of foolish chances and, let's face it, Clark won't always be there to protect him. Sheriff Adams is clearly still a skeptic, which says that the existence of meteor freaks isn't yet common knowledge in Smallville, but at the same time, it's also not the secret that only Clark and maybe a few other people knew about back in the first season. The world is changing, no doubt about it, and it's becoming less and less like our re uh, real world all the time, and becoming more of a high-concept, science fairy tale type of place where People with strange superpowers are becoming more and more commonplace. This philosophy is going to come into play much more heavily in future seasons. But this is, in my opinion, the first time that these things really started to change. Apart from that stuff, a fair amount of the early part of Season 2 was spent with Clark taking a good long look at his shortcomings as a budding superhero. Van shooting Clark with a kryptonite bullet is a good little callback to that stuff. Clark saw a bullet whizzing at him and carelessly decided to swat it away just like he has countless other bullets. But he didn't count on this one being made from kryptonite. 
Because of that, this bullet catches Clark off guard and nearly fucking kills him. Speaking of people almost dying, this might be the last time that someone gets the advantage over Chloe through computer hacking. Chloe didn't properly secure her wall of weird files, and because of that, some people died and other people were shot at. It all ends with Chloe's own life being threatened by Lionel Luther because her files ended up getting compromised and falsely implicating Lex Luther. Again, I won't spoil anything still to come, but I think it'd be fair to say that Chloe took the lessons of extinction to heart. In fact, there's a strong argument that she maybe does that a little too well. But again, that's a long time from now before we can get into that. It's a couple of years away. Another plot point is Lex coming back to Luther Corp. As part of the deal, Luther Corp has to take out a life insurance policy in case, God forbid, something happens to Lex. Now, Lex has philosophical problems with his life having a dollar amount assigned to it, but ultimately, he agrees to it. It's not quite so simple, though. The insurers notice that there's a lot of occasions when... Lex finds himself involved in life-threatening situations. Lionel's convinced Lex went through a tremendous psychological ordeal on the island and thinks he should probably see a therapist about it. Both of these things are going somewhere. Both of these things are a big deal. Anyway, episode four, Slumber. This episode's entire selection of pop songs comes exclusively from R.E.M. As a matter of fact, all of the R.E.M. songs come from the Greatest Hit CD, which came out a week after this episode aired. Big fucking coincidence, I'm sure. <sighs> now, don't get me wrong. I love R.E.M. as much as the next guy. Probably more than the next guy. But one thing that always stuck in my craw is their hypocritical anti-corporate bullshit. They were known to bitch and complain about these big giant corporations, but... That didn't stop them from re-upping their contract with Warner Brothers for 80 fucking million dollars or shilling their greatest hit CD on a Warner Brothers affiliated network. But remember, kitties, corporations are bad, okay? Fucking hypocrites. Anyway, just want to get that bullshit off my chest. As to Slumber itself, can't say I'm a fan. I think Slumber's fatal weakness is that we never really get to know Sarah. Hell. For that matter, we never really get to know her father, who's the villain of the piece. It's hard to get emotionally invested when both the damsel in distress and the mustache-twirling bad guy have such anemic character development. That's not to say there aren't some enjoyable moments, though. There's this little gem. Clark, where were you? Pete, did, did you see that guy? What guy? How could you miss him? He had a big red cape on. He was standing right there. Sarah, you must... Another thing, though, is how this episode's willing to play with reality. Or at least, Clark's perceptions of reality. The first 15 or so minutes of the episode are Clark's dream. He periodically drifts into dreams without warning. Another interesting thing is that, obviously, Clark gets tired and needs to sleep. This is a limitation that pre-crisis Superman just didn't have. There's no deeper significance to that. I just thought that was interesting and wanted to throw it out there. Anyway. And that's pretty much that for Slumber. 
I um, think I've got time to tackle maybe one more episode, though, at least in this segment. Episode 5, Perry. The premise is simple enough. Perry comes to Smallville, makes an ass of himself, and gets very close to uh, discovering Clark's secret. Excuse me a moment while I light up the cigarette. Oh yeah, right next to my heart, baby. Anyway, as I've said before, <clears throat> I usually don't comment much about actors or acting because I think that's a little bit beyond the scope of what I'm trying to do here in analyzing the myth and journey of Smallville. Still, I think it's only fair to say that Michael McKeon had a sorta of thankless job in playing a sorta of one-and-done character designed to throw everybody's life into disarray, behave like an absolute prick, and still be likable through the whole thing. But honestly, Michael McKeon nails it. He finds the right balance between lovable ne'er-do-well, alcoholic scumbag, and misunderstood nice guy. It's not a spoiler to say that he plays only a very small role in, in the lifetime of Smallville. He's just not going to be seen very many more times. Because of that, he doesn't have the same opportunity to, to develop uh, Perry into a real character. That, combined with the fact that he never actually plays the traditional Perry White, makes it kind of sort of impossible to single him out as my favorite Perry. Because of that, my all-time favorite version of Perry White remains John Hamilton from the Adventures of Superman TV show from back in the 50s. But that's another topic for another day. What I'm saying is that McKeon did a, a phenomenal job with what's ultimately a pretty fucking small role. There are no great revelations made in Perry as an episode. Uh, Clark's day-to-day -day life isn't much different when Perry leaves Smallville on that bus than when he first arrived. Clark discovers that his powers come from Earth's yellow sun, but really that's about it. Other plots are escalated a little bit, though. Perry attempts to push Lex around, but uh, that ends pretty fucking badly because Lex goes off the deep end about it. It's one thing to be annoyed by what Perry was trying to do, but I believe the clinical expression goes that Lex completely lost his shit over it. This works into Lex's art for a good bit of the season, because he completely lost control with Perry White, Lex agrees to intensive therapy sessions with Dr. Claire Foster. Again, I cannot overemphasize this part. This is big shit. It's going somewhere. By and large, though, Perry's just a fun episode with a lot of heart, warmth, and character moments. Mr. White, there's another bus in about an hour. I suggest you catch it. Don't call me cheap. At the time Perry originally aired, that was pretty much the, the consensus, too. Fans generally reacted positively to Perry. In time, though, Episodes like Extinction, Slumber, and Perry would come to be labeled filler by portions of the fan base. And generally, not always, but generally, 
The word filler is meant to be a sort of pejorative term to imply that the episode is skippable because it doesn't relate directly to the season-wide arc, or the series-wide arc, for that matter. And it is true that a lot of these standalone episodes have only tangential ramifications for the larger story that's being told. However, I don't see that as a bad thing. Sometimes you want to rewatch an entire season in a marathon and, and catch all of those little subtleties and nuances and subplots and all that stuff. But sometimes you just want to watch a couple of episodes of, of Smallville without having to re- memorize 50 fuck zillion different subplots and character arcs and other shit. In cases like that, the standalone episodes work really nicely. Another thing to consider is that television has to give new viewers a point of access. If you are just joining Smallville in Season 3, the events of Exile and, and Phoenix are mostly lost on you. But you know what? You can sure as shit wrap your head around the conflicts of Extinction, Slumber, and, and Perry. You can do that pretty easily. My point here is that new viewers are any TV show's lifeblood. Goff and Miller had to tell stories designed to appeal to their most devoted and diehard fans. But they also had to tell other stories to try and capture new viewers as well. It's a give-and-take thing, and it has to be. And by this stage in the game, the writers and showrunners had a pretty fucking good handle on how to balance the mythos-heavy episodes over and against standalone episodes like Perry. And yes, I call them standalone episodes because, to me, filler is a douchebag thing to say. We all pick our battles in life. Except to criticize or parody the term, you're never going to hear me use the word filler. Anyway, so there you have it. The first part of Season 3. Be right back after these messages. On May 30th, 2011, DC Comics announced the historic renumbering of all their superhero titles, and the internet broke in half. No. No. That's not true. That's impossible. Critics and naysayers abounded. Confusion reigned across fandom. What'll I do? What'll I do? What an unusual view. Not to mention the first reactions to the Supergirl costume. I hated her so much. It, it, the, it, flame, flames, flames on the side of my face, breathing, breath, heaving breaths, heaving. But then the books actually hit. And opinions... He likes it! I like it! Opinions began to change. The New 52 Adventures of Superman is a monthly podcast where John Wilson, J. David Weider, and Michael Kaiser take a look at each of the adventures of Superman and his family of characters in Action Comics. You know the deal, Metropolis. Treat people right or expect a visit from me. The Superman who appeared six months ago could hurdle skyscrapers and toss trucks around. 
Now it's faster. Now it's stronger. How soon before it can't be stopped? Superboy. If resolving a situation for him is going to get me out from under these people once and for all, that's a small price to pay for freedom. Release the Superboy. Supergirl. Okay. Giant metal creatures falling from the sky, speaking in clicks and beeps. Father would love this dream. And Superman. You could do so much good. We could do so much good. I am doing good, Lois. Clark's such a loner. Never really lets anyone get close to him. The New 52 Adventures of Superman. Available the first of every month on iTunes and at new52superman.libsyn.com. Why do you think superheroes are so important? People need heroes because they need somebody to inspire them, something to aim for, somebody to try to be like. One is the man of tomorrow, with powers and abilities far beyond those of mortal men. The other, the caped crusader, carrying out a solemn vow to spend his life warring on all criminals. For seven decades, they've been the world's finest heroes. They've teamed on radio, comics, newspapers, animation, and more. And now, they're teaming up for a podcast. To the Batmobile. Let's go. Up. Up. And away. Atomic batteries. Turbines to speed. Superman and Batman celebrates more than 70 years of the world's finest team with randomly chosen stories featuring the Man of Steel and the Dark Knight. Superman and Batman. Featuring your two favorite heroes and one podcast together. Find it today at greatcrypton.com. Okay, I'm back now, and I've got a little bit of feedback to go through here. And, you know, it's kind of a funny thing. I don't know how it comes across to you listeners, but you guys need to understand something. What you're about to hear is the first feedback that I've actually recorded during the year of 2015. Whatever that's worth to you. In any case, though, this email was sent in by my friend. His name is Chris Keith. Subject is JFK episode. The date is December the 28th, 2014. And before we even get going into what Chris has to say here, Chris, I feel like I really need to apologize to you because it just sort of got away from me to even check my email at, um, at uh, excellency at trennismagnus.com. Just totally got away from me. And so, anyway, I just want to 
just, I guess, acknowledge that publicly, that yes, this was actually su supposed to have been talked about quite a long time ago, and in fact would have been, except that, as I say, it just, I did not check email here for quite a while, so... Anyway, so, mea culpa, we all know who's at fault. So, uh, anyway, to get into uh, Chris's email, uh, again, the subject line is JFK episode. And, you know, the subject of that, call me crazy, but I feel like it's, uh, he's most likely referring to the uh, uh, commentary that I did for the movie, JFK. Uh, this is episode number 74. One may smile and smile and be a villain. I did a commentary for the Oliver Stone film, JFK, with Michael Bailey, and as a defense, I, all I can say is it seemed like a good idea to do at the time, but when you really start thinking about it, that's a three and a half hour show right there, you know? So it's just, it's kind of fucked up, but anyway, to get into Chris's email, though, he writes, damn, 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 Trennis, you've finally drawn me, uh, drawn me out by talking JFK a topic I typically cannot stand. Okay. I'm listening on uh, the day after Christmas when I'm supposed, uh, supposedly working, quote-unquote, and I'd uh, rather write this email than review some boring contract. Needless to say, I loved the episode. Put this email on pause and say, Damn, dude, you're listening to my show at work? That is a very high compliment, so at least that's how I'm interpreting it, so thank you very much, Chris. But anyway, get into, uh, back into Chris's email, he writes, While I still have never seen the movie, open parentheses, a serious error that I need to rectify this week, as I really want to see this film, and Parkland as well, close parentheses, I grew up here in Dallas, and it always felt like the assassination was the city's shame that was best left in the past. Unspoken and unmentioned. I'm going to put the email on pause and say, you know, I've always really liked Dallas as a city. There's just, I live in Houston. So what I've, no, what I've noticed here is that the architecture, and there's really not a whole lot of variance in a lot of modern architecture, but at least the architecture here in Houston, it's very, uh, form follows function. You know, there's really not much to look at and behold. Whereas in Dallas, they do tend to put a little bit more emphasis on the aesthetic, you know, the way that things look and whatnot. And so I don't know as I'd go so far as to say art, but there's just more to see, you know, in and around the city uh, in Dallas than there is uh, in Houston. So it's just, it's one of those, it's one of those really many differences that's always sort of uh, fascinated me. So anyway, point is, I just, I really like Dallas. And the weird thing is I've noticed that people who live in Dallas tend to say variations on the same thing. Like, this is somehow a scarlet letter for the city that, you know, they just have to live with. And, look, I'm not the one that... Uh, I'm not the one that has to live there, so I don't know. But it just... It always felt to me like that would be really weird that, you know, the death of one man is held responsible. And that's basically held against an entire city. That just... That isn't a scan for me. I mean, that's... I believe that... Uh, Ronald Reagan was shot, I think, in Washington, D.C., and that'd be like saying that, you know, Washington, D.C. is where presidents go to die. It's just, that's very strange to me. So, anyway, not questioning your experience, I'm just saying that, you know, I, that's something that I've sort of noticed that people in Dallas, you know, say that's an attitude they tend to have, and it just, that's just very strange to me, you know. I, I can't imagine that, uh, you know, why anybody would want to make them feel that way. So, 
and you know what? I feel like I should probably say that I'm just not a a, a really huge Kennedy fan, uh, at least as far as you know his policies and whatnot. I mean, guy was okay, but I just I don't really see what the hype's all about, you know. So, frankly, I don't think by any stretch of the imagination is he the greatest president of the 20th century, or for that matter, the greatest president we've ever had. And you know, yeah, it, it sucks that the guy got shot to death, especially in front of his wife like that, but. This shit happens in life, man. What do you want to hear? So, anyway, getting the uh, get back into Chris's email, though, he writes, I've read enough about it over the years and watched every documentary known to man, but for some reason, I avoided this movie in 1991. Last year, the 50th anniversary of the assassination, open parentheses, if you want to call 50 years after the brutal murder of a sitting president an anniversary, quote-unquote, close parentheses, the great city of Dallas decided to host a fucking celebration to commemorate the event. <laughs> I'm putting your email on pause, dude. I had no idea about that. Really? Wow, that is... That's a little morbid, isn't it? I mean, that's... I mean, look, as I say, I mean, I don't think that this is something that, you know, people who live in Dallas... Or for that matter, the city of Dallas itself. Those are, you know, the what happened with Kennedy is something that they should be shamed for. But at the same time, commemorating the fucking event? Are you kidding me? Look, whatever, dude. But that's fucked up. Anyway, get into uh, Chris's email again. He writes, Every one of my friends who attended said that uh, they did so for the history of the event. We're all in our late 30s and early 40s, so none of us lived through the actual event. I had no desire to celebrate, quote-unquote, and I certainly didn't want to be present. Surprisingly, none of the Kennedys made it down to celebrate as well. Gee, can't imagine why. I can't see Caroline walking around with a commemorative hat and t-shirt. <laughs> uh, well, you know what, dude? Since you mentioned it, neither can I. So, <laughs> oh, that's good. My other reason for not seeing this movie earlier was due to the fact that I watched Stone's Nixon in college. The fact that Stone made up such egregious bullshit about a present, uh, president that is easy to attack based on the truth was amazing. Nixon's drinking problem, despite the fact that he was a Quaker? Meeting with a, a militia group headed by Larry motherfucking Hagman in Dallas just before Kennedy landed? I'm still surprised that he didn't have a shirtless Anthony Hopkins on the grassy knoll with bandoliers crossing his chest taking the shot. <laughs> this is good. Dude, I love this email. This is great. After seeing the, uh, that steaming turd and hearing one of my uh, political science professors that Stone was torched at a, at a history symposium, I really like the desire to check out JFK. I'm going to put your email on pause and say, look, as far as Nixon is concerned... And I guess really JFK, I kind of regard those films as being sort of, I don't know, a thought experiments, you know? It's basically an exercise in thinking. It's not necessarily something to be taken literally, you know? Uh, you could kind of regard it as being like the book of Genesis in that way. This is, there's something that's being taught here that has truth, or at least in the case of those films, some, something that is based on truth. But the connective tissue that's forming it all together, you don't have to accept that as verbatim, word-for-word -word fact, if you don't want to. And so, in the case of Nixon, the film, Nixon, 
I enjoyed that movie more from the standpoint of... Again, I, I guess sort of a, a thought experiment. Sort of uh, an exercise in what if. And really the same thing is truer of JFK. Where you have basically Jim Garrison. Or really a kind of a, a cipher for Jim Garrison. Running through a bunch of different possibilities as to what might have happened. Now, I guess as far as analysis is concerned, really the one real criticism that I've got about JFK is that it... it and this isn't really just a criticism, you understand. Um, JFK is a film, and Oliver Stone has his point of view about the material. He comes down on the side of thinking that there was a conspiracy of some kind to kill the president. That is to say, John Kennedy, that there was some sort of a conspiracy there to kill the president. And so because of that, he, he went through what he believes are the most likely explanations for, I guess, the cause of that, the origins of it. And I don't know. I mean, again, he's not making a documentary. He's very clear on the fact that he's not making a documentary. But I might have actually preferred it had he left the final analysis a little bit more open to interpretation. I mean, the fact is, the only reason that I'm kind of a conspiracy theory skeptic is from the angle that it's been, what's it been, like over 50 years now? And nobody's come clean. Nobody's blown the whistle. Nobody's had an attack of conscience. Nobody's confessed anything on their deathbed including, by the way, E. Howard Hunt, it just, you go on down the line, and it's, there's, I guess, circumstantial evidence that may indicate that, you know what, there could be more to the story than what we were originally told. But just as likely, I mean, it could, uh, the, I don't want to say discrepancies, but some of the more interesting aspects of the case, it really could come down to very simple, very down-to-earth, very prosaic explanations. And I kind of feel like Oliver Stone did the material a disservice by not at least considering the possibility. And I guess Prosecution's Exhibit A for that is always going to be the Penn and Teller episode of Bullshit, where they pretty well replicate the firing job that Lee Harvey Oswald is at least alleged to have done. Uh, from the sixth floor of the book depository building. They pretty well replicated it using, as much as they could, the same type of rifle, at uh, the same angles and trajectories and all these other things, and they pretty well replicated the magic bullet. And that was such a mind job, because for so many years, sort of the conspiracy theorist mantra for this was that that type of shooting job is completely impossible. Number one, your first shot would always be the best shot. The Warren Commission would have us believe that the first shot went wide. Number two, the second shot, the magic bullet, went zigzagging all over the place and just in a very difficult-to-believe sort of way caused a bunch of different injuries. And then, of course, the third shot is the best shot, the head shot. That's the, that was the kill shot. And when you say it like that, it actually does sound a little bit hard to believe. But what you kind of have to figure, though, is that if there were multiple shooters, number one, there wouldn't be eyewitness or ear witnesses, I suppose, 
ear witness uh, testimony saying they heard only three shots. You'd expect there to be rapid fire bursts. And I don't know. I just, I, I, you would think that basically Kennedy would have looked like Swiss cheese, you know, as he went through the motorcade. And that's just not what happened. You know, most people, what they're willing to say is they heard three shots and these are many of them combat veterans, people who you would think they know what gunfire sounds like. You know, many of them had been veterans in World War II, the Korean War, and other American conflicts. They knew what they were what, what they were hearing. And so I have reason to come down with them more than I do Oliver Stone, who, let's face it, I don't even... I think he was alive back when Kennedy was uh, assassinated, but it's not like the guy was there. It's not like he's an eyewitness or anything. So, anyway... Go back to Nixon, though. I regard Nixon as being sort of the same, the same thing, except I was expecting a little bit more character assassination. Fact of the matter is that I just thought that Nixon as a film was actually surprisingly sympathetic, you know? And we, really, when you come right down to it, Nixon did one thing wrong, right? That's it. Otherwise, I'm at a real loss to think of anything that was just significantly wrong with any of his policies. He pulled America out of a conflict that you can believe that we had business fighting or you can believe that we didn't have business fighting. But either way, that was an unpopular war. He ended the war. He opened up China, relations to China. And that is huge. Uh, you know, b always before there was this uh, standoffishness between the West in general, and America in particular, with respect to China. Well, he opened up China. Um, let's see, the... Uh, of course, now I'm... There was actually one other... Th it got it. was actually really famous. A uh, really famous thing that he did. And, of course, now I'm... Now I'm blanking on it. So, whatever. Those two things, though, I think are actually really good. He ended an, a, uh, an unpopular war that he had nothing to do with. And uh, he opened up relations... Oh, detente. What am I... God, I can't believe I forgot that. The Cold War, prior to the Nixon administration, had been... You had things like just really scary uh, moments, things like the Cuban Missile Crisis, that it could happen. You know, just break out out of nowhere. Well, Nixon brought us detente, that it didn't end the Cold War, but it kind of put the Cold War on hold right? Uh, basically, detente was a, a way, uh, and I believe it was dreamed up by Henry Kissinger, but basically detente was uh, kind of a stalemate, right? Neither side was advancing anymore. And I got to tell you, in the Cold War, sort of this showdown of sorts between uh, the United States and the Soviets, both of whom are nuclear powers, both of whom have their fingers hovering just above the nuclear trigger, to stop forward advancement and thus stop tension on both sides to keep this thing from escalating. I regard that as a major foreign policy victory on the part of President Nixon. So, um, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of there with you when I say that, you know, I think that uh, he was a good president in a lot of ways. And he was really undone by one thing. And it's kind of ironic that this crummy third-rate burglary ended up undoing one of the most powerful White Houses that we've ever had 
anyway, it's just it, it's one of history's great ironies, I think. So, anyway, my point is uh, is that um, I felt like Oliver Stone, on the one hand, yes, he did go kind of hard on Nixon, but on the other hand, I felt like he was a lot more sympathetic than I was originally expecting. Of all people, Oliver Stone to be, and so is the is Nixon just a great film? I don't think so. You know, it, I think it's worth watching. Especially this sort of strange inferiority complex that Nixon uh, had with respect to Kennedy. And, I, and honestly, I couldn't tell you about the uh, historical accuracy of that. But um, actually, hold on just a minute. I'm going to drink off my uh, Mountain Dew here. Mountain Dew, Baja Blast. Anyway, so the historical accuracy of that I cannot vouch for. But I always felt like Nixon was, uh, especially as I became a little bit more familiar with, I guess, with his legacy, he really is a good president. And so there's a lot, uh, a lot there to admire. So anyway, whatever you want to make of that. Point is, I mean, I don't think JFK or Nixon are terrible films. And certainly JFK is definitely worth watching. Nixon... If you absolutely positively have to, I mean, I think the cast is really what makes that movie. Um, it's just, it's a really good cast. It's enjoyable. But it's its really, I don't think that movie really gets underway until uh, Nixon's actually in office. So anyway, as I say, you know, uh, Eye of the Beholder, you know, I think JFK is worth watching. Especially if you consider yourself to be a little bit of a completist. Like anybody who's listening to this and you're Facebook friends with Ethan Van, uh, Ethan Van Skyver, he considers himself to be a little bit of an authority on all things related to the Kennedy assassination. And much like me, he comes down on the side of doubting that there was any type of a conspiracy whatsoever to kill President Kennedy. He believes that Lee Harvey Oswald acted alone and... He has very valid, very lucid arguments, and many of which I agree with. And so I'm not saying that every single thing that uh, Ethan Van Skyver posts on Facebook is necessarily to be taken as absolute truth. But at least when it comes to the Kennedy assassination, I get the idea that he really is sincere and just doubting that there was any sort of a conspiracy there whatsoever. So anyway... All of this is to say that, um, I, as I say, I think the, uh, the the film, JFK, is definitely worth seeking out, especially if you're a completist. And I don't, I don't think you're doing yourself a disservice, necessarily, by at least watching uh, Nixon, the film Nixon. In all cases, though, it's one of those things where you kind of need, you, you need to have your bullshit filter turned on. Probably cranked up pretty high, too. But as long as you go in there with a healthy dose of skepticism, I'm prepared to say that they're actually fairly enjoyable films. Just, as I say, be careful of how literally you interpret those films. So, anyway, that's a hell of a tangent that I just went on. To get back into uh, Chris's email, though, he writes, I get the fascination. I've read quite a few books on the subject, seen every document, uh, documentary ever produced, and went to the precursor to the sixth floor uh, museum that was located in the West End Marketplace. Fascinating stuff. 
Of course, the best models that you will ever find of Dealey are not on display in the Sixth Floor Museum. They were in Ozzie Davis's room in Bubba Hotep. Sadly, the true story was only known to Sebastian Half and Ozzie Davis. If you haven't seen Bubba Hotep, this statement makes absolutely no sense. I'm going to put uh, your email back on pause and say, you know, I have seen Bubba Hotep. I know exactly what you're talking about. And that's just a really interesting movie. I mean, I went into it expecting a sort of something along the lines of, I guess, zombie land. And obviously that is not what I got. That's not to say that the movie isn't interesting. I'm saying, in fact, I'm saying it is interesting. It's a, it's a good movie. It's just, I think the marketing for that movie was a little bit uh, wrong-headed, shall we say. So, but anyway, yeah, good movie. And I, I know exactly what you're talking about there. But anyway, getting back into Chris's email, though, because I'm starting to run out of time here. Growing up in Dallas, I fortunately never had to deal with many of the stupid questions other than an occasional conspiracy discussion. I do remember my first year of law school. I had multiple people ask me for directions to the Sixth Floor Museum, as if all of the city was a tour guide. Never been. No idea. I was half tempted to give them directions to the county jail or an impound lot, but even I'm not that big of a dick. My funniest Kennedy story occurred on my first visit to Vegas in 2001. While standing in line for an overpriced but oh-so-tasty buffet, I had some guy notice my Dallas radio station t-shirt. Being a loud man from Cincinnati, he proceeded to read out the morning show slogan from my t-shirt and then strike up a conversation about Dallas. I said, yes, I'm from Dallas. Lived there my whole life. He proceeded to ask, so, what do you think about that whole president thing? Thinking that he was talking about the 2000 election, I shrugged, hating political talk with random people, but said that I thought that taking the final uh, totals to the Supreme Court was pretty childish and the act of a beaten man, and Gore should have conceded much earlier, as it made him look like a sore loser. The old man stopped me and, and said, No, I meant the Kennedy thing. How does one respond to that? It was... bad? I was just silently hoping that he and his wife would sit nowhere near us for breakfast, as I'd hate to have to use French toast as a limo, bacon as the sixth floor perch, sausage links as the supposed gunman on the grassy knoll. <laughs> oh, this is good. My mom always taught me not to play with my food. <laughs> Enough Kennedy talk for now. I'm enjoying the show and eagerly looking forward to 2015 and all the planned goodness. Every show is a must-listen, and thank you so much for all that you do. Signed... Chris Keith. P.S. The cigarette break on Man of Steel was still the funniest shit I've ever heard on a podcast. <laughs> and that's the end of it. Thank you so much, Chris, for uh, sending in this email. And honestly, there was just so much stuff here. Obviously, there's a whole lot of stuff to talk about. So uh, thank you very much. You really, you, you really gave me a lot to work with here. And this, dude, this email was fucking hysterical. So uh, I'm going to check the Gmail address here, see if I've got anything... Worth sorting through here. Ah, yes, I've got one from my old friend, Fanboy Miss Prime. Subject line says, Shit shooting again. Date is August the 20th, 2014. Fanboy Miss Prime writes, Hey, Magnus, so, what version of Gen 13 did you like? I'm going to put the email on pause and say, 
Um, man, I really don't know where this is coming from. Uh, but very honestly, just to kind of answer that question, um, the version of Gen 13 that I enjoyed was uh, from that first ongoing uh, series that Wildstorm had circa... Oh, gee, like 1995, 96, something like that. Um, because I'd kind of developed a prejudice about uh, really all Image comics that I came to find out it wasn't completely justified. Specifically that the, that Image, as the name would tend to suggest, was sort of an art showcase and story is just nowhere to be found. And... There's some justification for that prejudice. I, I just don't think it's as bad as people want to say. Now, there are instances where it's absolute truth, but I don't think that is complete. That defines completely what Image was all about in the early uh, to midnight, really all through the '90s. Actually, the first example I can think of, uh, you know, where I kind of had to revise my opinion was when I was reading uh, Spawn, and I realize that Spawn has become sort of a joke, especially these days. But the thing to keep in mind is that, number one, Todd McFarlane, the writer, was nowhere near as practiced and accomplished as Todd McFarlane, the artist, the penciler. And the other thing is, I, I happen to think that there was some really decent story ideas going on in uh, those first several issues of Spawn. So you know, the greatest thing that comics has ever produced? Well, obviously not. But still, it was, uh, it was pretty enjoyable. Now, another another comic that sort of made me revise my opinion about, or my preconceptions, I should say, about uh, Image, was The Max, which was a completely sort of mindfuck of a comic book that it had, like, the superficial trappings of superheroes and whatnot. This is not a superhero book at all. And I don't mean that in a pejorative sense, but I mean that more from the angle that if you expect, you know, costumes and secret identities and supervillains and all those sorts of things, the Max really is not the book for you. So thought it was enjoyable, and it was just different from a lot of other things that were on the market at that time. Then you get into Gen 13. Now... Wildstorm, I kind of felt like they'd sort of earned that reputation that a lot of Image Comics had of really not being specifically very good. And what I found was that if you just take Jim Lee away from the writing and put real writers in there, the basic concepts and stories that were coming out of Wildstorm were actually quite good. And one of the best examples that I can think of offhand is actually Gen 13. Now, full disclosure, I have not read the miniseries. Never have. And at some point, I'm going to. I've actually got a plan in mind for the Gen 13 miniseries. But primarily, my experience with Gen 13 was the ongoing series that spun out of the miniseries. And I thought that, you know, these were... In some ways, they were kind of typical of what teenager comics like teenage-oriented comics, were sort of all about during the 90s. But there was this... I don't know. There was, a, there was just this quality to Gen 13 that, again, was this the greatest comic that was coming out at the time? Obviously not. But at the same time, it was a fun little read. 
J. Scott Campbell's art is just top shelf. Brendan Choi's uh, writing, I thought, was was uh, was actually really good. He gave every character, to varying degrees, he gave each character their own specific voice, their own personality. And I just thought it was a pretty fun little comic book. So, I mean, I was never like a big Gen 13 devotee, but I thought that, you know, it's Gen 13 is one of those books that people look back on when it comes to the 90s, and this cannot be what they're talking about. You know, uh, all of those jokes that people make about 90s comics and all that stuff. If they're including Gen 13 in that, it must be because they've never actually read Gen 13. That's all I can figure, so I don't know. But anyway, um, get back into uh, Prime's email, though. He writes, as for Superboy, you cut out before the calling, didn't you? And yes, I did. Because, holy crap, that story stank. I literally couldn't finish the first chapter of it in completed uh, annoyance and boredom. It really didn't help matters. The Legion Lost group felt like they were being treated like chums when they were the most experienced heroes there. Given I was reading Legion Lost at the time, it was kind of an important thing to me. Sounds like Superman was the DC new title you were reading and not enjoying, Magnus. Or, sorry, the only DC new title that you were reading and not enjoying, Magnus. I'm going to put your email on pause and say, yeah, actually, I think that's... Well, it... Uh, yes and no. I was not especially fond of this new setting that Superman had kind of found himself in. But, right or wrong, what I had assumed about the New 52 was that this was going to be a fresh beginning. Make sense? That all of the characters were getting a ground zero, page one, full-scale, scorched-earth fucking reboot. And that's just not what happened. And it felt like DC, they wanted all the hype and press and promotion and publicity of their being uh, a full-scale, you know, page one type of reboot. But they didn't want to actually commit to doing that because there were certain things about their publishing line that legitimately was working. I speak, of course, of Superman, or sorry, I speak, of course, of Batman and Green Lantern, right? Batman and Green Lantern were solid sellers for DC, and they didn't want to basically piss off what they, you know, what they had going there, but they wanted to completely retool all or most of, of their publishing line. And I just felt like that, then as now, I feel like that's just kind of a sackless way of, uh, of approaching comics. If you're doing universe building, I'm sorry, it just that that's just such a pussy way of doing things. I I just wish that DC had the cojones to either make the old continuity work, which I define as 1986 to one might say 2011, that continuity, have the balls to make that work by whatever means necessary, or else grow a pair of balls and start over again. Do a full-scale fucking reboot. Now, I don't care if that throws all of Jeff John's uh, admittedly great ideas for Green Lantern, if those things have to get shown the door in order for this to work. Fine. I'm, I, I'm fine with that. Okay? Because, you know, ultimately what I want is a continuity that makes sense. And the New 52 didn't. I mean, from the get-go. And I'm told it's only worse now. 
But even from the get-go, it just felt like this was a very strange way of doing things, you know? And so it's... I guess my displeasure existed really in that I just wasn't happy with the fact that Superman was being effectively reinvented. I mean, look, a reboot is one thing, all right? I don't think anybody out there, whether they love John Burns, Superman or not, would look at this and say that they're, this is categorically not Superman. You sometimes hear the pejorative that Byrne marvelized Superman, but this whole notion of uh, of Byrne turning Superman into something he fundamentally is not. Nobody out there, as far as I know, is accusing John Byrne of having done that. New 52 is different. These are... this Superman has never looked this way before. He's never behaved this way before. He's never been written this way before. Uh, his supporting cast, they've never behaved that way before. And it just... it. You can put as many red capes and Superman symbols on this character's chest as you see fit. This just doesn't seem like Superman. You know, on some primitive level to me, there's something about this that just seems other to me. And so, and then you get into the uh, Swamp Thing number one, wherein the new 52 Superman had a cameo appearance, wherein it's revealed that this character has at some point in the past died and I about hit the fucking roof you know and that was anyway bottom line that was a bridge too far so I'm really rambling here so I'm getting back into it now as for Batman I like the character just fine but I also keep myself at arm's length of any fandom probably because otherwise I'd be telling uh, some of them what they could kiss because I, at one point, got into the inner workings of group fan fiction for comics, basically cutting off from a certain point that they took comic book universes in a different direction. And I made uh, friends and one guy, well, he's a spin-doctoring smarmy prick who kept saying, I'll answer it in the end, and his series 90% uh, of the time stopped for one reason or another before the end. A friend of mine and I made it very clear we did not like the guy who it seemed everyone else sucked up to and respected far more than he should have been. That made me realize I need to keep my distance from the fandom and usually behind the scenes or else they'd, uh, they'd be getting it with both barrels from me. Back to the Dark Knight. I also am not one of the fans of Bat God and treat it like a holy text. I read Detective Comics, a.k.a. Scott Snyder's pre-Flashpoint run and more. Streets of Gotham, and whatever else, uh, whatever stuff caught my interest. Post-Flashpoint, it was pretty much Nightwing before Court of Owls, and my interest pretty much died for the Bat stuff at the moment. I'm going to put this email on pause and say, you know what? The Bat God thing, I know what people mean by that, and I've even been a critic of it myself, so I don't want to sound like I'm somehow trying to disown things I've said in the past. But I've sort of kind of come to a, a, a different perspective on uh, the Bat God, and truth to tell, I'm really not sure if I've even released the episode yet. I'm trying to look at my schedule here and vamp for time as I do it, but I'm, basically, I, I had occasion to read, basically, it's a shitload of comics here, and 
uh, of a Batman comic. Oh, yeah. No, these episodes are nowhere near coming out. Yeah. Okay. Uh, basically, there's uh, I've got a show scheduled f- way in the future, right? Where I have occasion to sort of take another look at this whole Bat-God thing. And... My hope is that I don't come off like I'm contradicting what I said before. It's just one of those things that I never really held under the microscope until such time as I read these comics. And I think you'll know it when you see it, but basically there's going to be an episode. Uh, Let's see. Looking into it. Yes, here it is. Uh, There's going to be an episode uh, focusing on uh, uh, Batman number 516 and 517. Now, there's, gonna be, uh, there's also going to be Detective Comics 683 and 684 as well, just to kind of round things out. But really, five, Batman 516 and 517, that's going to be really what tells the story. The title of this episode is going to be The Actuary and the Sleeper. Uh, and I'm basically going to... I'm going to put forward a theory regarding Bat God that... I'm not asking you necessarily to believe it, but am I gonna? But I am gonna ask you to at least acknowledge that there is a germ of logic and reason behind it. So hopefully that makes sense. But anyway, my point is I agree with you. I'm not overly fond of the back god myself, but it does have a place, believe it or not. So that's really about as far into it as I need to get right now. So get back into your email though. Too many crossovers, as I feel rather burned on those. Especially the current model of lead into the next event and never be a complete story that stands on its own school of crossover events. Though I read Age of X in trade, and it was rather good, actually. Then again, it was two tie-ins, and the rest of the story was written by one writer. Which is, or rather, which was, the talented Mike Carey. Age of X felt more like a very expansive story arc of a single title, which was a bi- which was bi-monthly as the New Mutants book was between writers and had got used along with uh, X-Men Legacy to tell the story of a personality of Legion rewriting reality and Rogue and others having to fight it. I'm going to put your email on pause and say, I think I remember a little something-something about the Age of X. I never actually read the... I'm, truth is, I'm not a big X-Men guy to begin with, so... When I say that I haven't read a particular X-Men book, you need to understand that really covers a shitload of territory. In fact, it's the rare X-Men comic that I actually have read. And um, I think the only non-X-Men, like team, book that I've ever uh, read was the Wolverine solo title at one point. We'll be coming to it a, uh, much further down the line, in fact. But it relates to, a, uh, as you say, a much larger crossover event. So, um, but I do remember hearing a little something-something about Age of X, and, at least if I'm thinking of the right thing, in Legion, he had some sort of, or some sort of time travel or something that was involved with it. I, I forget the details, but basically, as you say, he was sort of rewriting things in his own image, and I remember thinking, that was kind of an interesting idea for a story, but yeah, there were just, there were so many things that were coming out, and that was definitely one that it, it on the one hand it piqued my interest but i just didn't really i don't know prioritize it i guess so anyway get back into uh, your email though the story also started the baton swap from rogue to legion being the main character of x-men legacy i highly recommend it yes that also means i'd love for you to review it on the show 
Yeah, it's something I do, and if Shag and Michael Bailey say, find your joy, I try to spread my joy to any and all comic podcasts with an open format of the podcast or talking about whatever they want. To which I respond, and this is me now, Magnus, to which I respond, dude, fucking bring it. Um, I can't guarantee that I'm going to have a whole lot to say about Age of X, but I'll see if I can find a way to um, squeeze it in somehow, even if it's only to say, hey, yeah, and this is another story that I've been reading. Uh, it's fucked up, but it came to me as a recommendation from Fanboy Emma's Prime, so here's what I think. So, anyway, it could be that. So, anyway, we'll, we'll have to find out about that. Get back into the email, though. Prime writes, Only reason Dream War didn't get a Back to the Bins review was because uh, Scott Hogwarts Can't Contain Me Gardner didn't want to hurt my feelings by saying that he didn't like the ending. Which, he hadn't hurt my feelings with that. Loved the podcast and was glad to see it celebrated... Uh, see it celebrated being around for a year. And the proper term is deranged maniac scholar, not lowly peasant. So long, and thanks for the fish. Thank you, uh, fanboy Miss Prime. I really appreciate you always taking the time to write in. And uh, you've always got a whole lot to say. And you've also you know, got some very interesting recommendations to make. And the fact is, I'm you know what? I'm kind of thinking now about uh, taking a look at Age of X. I'll see what I can do about that. Uh, just see what we can come up with on that. Again, no promises, you know, but at the same time, though, one never knows what the future may bring, and that actually sounds like a pretty interesting story. So we'll have to see about that. So uh, as for me, I think that's pretty much it for feedback this week. I've got so much more feedback I need to go through. But as I look at all this, I see that this episode's going long as it is. So, probably time to uh, wrap it up. Now, as to next week, let me just take a look at the schedule here and uh, see. Okay, yeah. So, uh, uh, as to next week, I'm beginning my Extinction Level Event uh, mini-series. Or mega-series, really. I'm going to be talking about a shitload of different DC and Marvel co uh, crossover events. I've got uh, DC's Legends. Armageddon 2001, The Final Night. Then on the Marvel side, I've got House of M and also some other stuff, too. So, all around, this looks uh, this looks like it's going to be a lot of fun. So I hope you guys enjoy it. I've got a uh, guest star lined up for, hopefully, every single one of those shows. So, uh, that's the way that... That's the way it's planned right now. So I haven't actually... At the time that this is coming out, actually, I haven't finished recording everything just yet. So we'll have to see how things play out there. But um, either way, that's the plan. And that's how I uh, would like to see things uh, wrap up with uh, the Extinction Level Event miniseries. But only time will tell. Either way, though, thanks to all of you for listening. And I'll see you next week. Okay, so I think that's just about the end of that. Trentus Magnus, Punches Reality, is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. You can find the home for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality at twotruefreaks.com, which is spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. You can also find it on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. You can email me and my parole officer at trentusmagnus at gmail.com, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. -E -N -N Did you know 
You can sponsor any episode of this or any other of your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated shows. That's right. Simply click the PayPal link, donate any amount at all, tell us which show you're choosing and what message, if any, you'd like us to read on your behalf, and you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode. With your message read in the show's opener, it's that easy. And there is no minimum donation. Be a show sponsor today. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at 2TrueFreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, 2 True Freaks gets a cut of what you buy. It doesn't cost you anything extra, and it really helps the freaks out. You get to shop as usual and help out the 2 True Freaks at the same time. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play. Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promo section. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law, some assembly required, batteries not included. Trentus Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demonsacor of Milan, Italy. Thank you.